Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Autosport Podcast. We look back at Daniel Ricciardo's dramatic win in the Malaysian Grand Prix and dig into F1's latest conspiracy theory. The Malaysian Grand Prix has given us no shortage of things to talk about, with Daniel Ricciardo taking his first victory in over two years, Lewis Hamilton's engine failure, Nico Rosberg's charge from the back to podium, and a few controversial on-track incidents to get our teeth into. My name is Ed Straw, the Editor-in-Chief of Autosports, and I'm joined today first by Autosport.com Editor Glenn Freeman. Glenn, where do you stand on drinking champagne out of a shoe? It's not for me, but as far as I'm concerned, Daniel Ricciardo can do whatever he wants, because he's the man in F1 at the moment. He's certainly been uh, the outstanding driver of the season, a long-awaited win. Uh, we've also got Scott Mitchell, Autosports Features Editor. He's under instructions not to talk about Formula E this week after the season preview extravaganza podcast that came out uh, last week. But I'm um, here specifically to talk about Sebastian Loeb's first win in World Rallycross at the weekend, right? You're also banned from talking about Rallycross for now, although we may talk about that in another podcast. You never know. So, Glenn, there's a conspiracy against Lewis Hamilton, right? No. Seconded. Okay, I think if we're going to give value for money for this free podcast... Oh, you want more, do you? I, th- I think we need to give the, the listeners more. So, why is there no conspiracy? There's some tinfoil hat wearers who will tell you there is. 
Yeah, and it's, it's really tiresome. And I think it's, it's only because of the world we live in that the fact that the teams have to answer to these sort of things from fans within minutes now of races happening and interviews being given. In a way, that sort of connection is good between the fans and the paddock, but yeah, this would have never happened in the past. It's, it's bad luck. And I, I sympathise with Hamilton. It's, it's really unfortunate. I think the claim of there's all these Mercedes engines and only mine are having any problems is probably a bit far-fetched. I'm sure there are plenty of precautionary engine parts that get changed with the other Mercedes engines that we never hear about. So I can't believe for one moment that every other engine that isn't Hamilton's is bulletproof. Maybe he's a, his ones are just a bit more spectacular when they go bang. Yeah, it did seem to keep his foot in once he realised there was a problem, which I think we all approve of. We like a bit of fire. Oh, I like a proper engine failure. We don't get that anymore. We get stop the car, stop the car before anything can go bang. I understand the reason for that, but you like a proper engine blow up if it's going to go bang, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think as well with what Lewis did in terms of what he said afterwards, I know there was a bit of a clarification once he'd calmed down what he, he was actually getting at. But, you know, he, he's, he's not an idiot. He, he chooses his words quite carefully. And I think, you know, the, the initial comments he made in the aftermath of the, the expiration was it put pressure on Mercedes to react, didn't it? That's not just Mercedes having to comment because there are some idiots on social media saying that they've got it in for their own drive. I think Lewis was obviously making his feelings quite clear. And I think in that situation, you know, Mercedes does have a bit of a damage limitation job to do to not attract any more sort of negative attention. You can understand the frustration. I don't think anyone's got any problem with that. You know, the guy dominated the weekend. He was about to land a major blow in the battle for the world championship and then for that to happen. So you can understand him being being frustrated. And, you know, if there's bad luck, these things can happen, can't they? And you can understand he maybe feels he's having more problems than others and, and maybe he is, but there is a luck of the draw. Somebody has to have the most problems. Yeah, and I do quite like the fact that if he feels that way, if he feels that someone or something, which I think was the phrase he used, is against him, I like the fact that he said it. You know, come out of it. Don't don't just think it behind the scenes or cause trouble behind the scenes. You know, Lewis, when he's in the mood, he will wear his heart on his sleeve. And I think we saw that on Sunday. You could hear it in the radio message. He was absolutely gutted because of how pivotal that one is probably going to be in the world title fight. And I actually like the fact that some of the interviews he gave afterwards, he was speaking his mind. That doesn't mean I agree with the theory, though. No, and I think as well, you know, we saw it after the race in a in a positive sense in terms of how how much you could see how much it meant to Ricardo to to win the race. But I also quite like it that you don't have Lewis bottling it up, sort of, you know, when he got out of the car after he stopped the radio message was one thing, and then you could just see in his body language how utterly dejected it was and it's you know you don't like it in the in the sense that you can see a driver having some you know mental anguish but it's just quite nice to actually see them and hear them be willing to sort of express that you know you see that they're not total robots also how on earth would mercedes go about engineering less reliable versions of these ultra successful highly complicated formula one power units because we can't call them engines anymore and why would they run the risk of one going bang at the home of their main sponsor? Are we allowed to name drop Malaysian oil companies? You certainly can, yeah. You Other Malaysian of, oil companies are available. Yeah, yeah. Are the, they? Of, I, I, that, the power of advertising in Formula One, I can't name any. That's a good point, yeah. Everyone yeah. knows what Petronas is. So Petronas is home race. Mercedes trying to win the Constructors' Championship. That's not a time to stick a Duff engine in your star driver's car. Did you did you notice the moment when Lewis referred to himself as I'm Mercedes' number one driver? And he wasn't just referring to the team. He meant when he was doing that thing about the eight drivers that are supplied by them, he referred to himself as number one of that 
um, of that collection of drivers, which I quite <laughs> liked. And that seems to have slipped under the radar because of so much else of what he said was so sort of fiery. It also Pardon didn't look. Pun. It also didn't look very good uh, for for Petronas as well because Hamilton stops right in front of a massive Petronas logo. So you know that's not exactly something that they want, is it? I mean, a is is all publicity good publicity when you've got the car that you're sponsoring up in flames and smoke well, pouring out? I mean, out we the know that Petronas oil burns well now. <laughs> <laughs> he actually did it really well because there were Petronas signs in the background from both angles. So if he'd wanted to do that, he couldn't have parked in a better place. So what you're saying is Lewis is just a model professional. <laughs> like he, even when things go badly, he's just... Formula One's too commercial now for my liking. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the bottom line, it's just a furious driver who's done everything he should do and it's just, just gone wrong for him. And he's just got to get his head down five races to go and try and win the, win the championship. The claim about sabotage as well, it's just... It's bizarre because I can't... I just can't see any company investing so much money in a driver to then shoot him in the foot and stop him from winning and employing hundreds of people to to build these incredible power units and execute this a weekend as perfectly as they were doing up to that point and then to press the button to to put it one way in in terms of then screwing over his race it's just bizarre yeah and ed you've said this in the past as well if if a team did want to hobble a driver say it does have a preference in who wins the world championship there are far more subtle ways to go about it aren't there as well Oh, you can do anything. You can do a slow pit stop. You can turn down the engine. There's there's a million and one things you could do that would be undetectable rather than blowing up your engine in the full view of the world and photographs of your and video images of your car going around the world on fire, which is not good for Mercedes or Jonas or anyone involved. So obviously, you know, Lewis was annoyed and, you know, he, I, I'm not, I don't think he was expressly trying to say the team's trying to hold me back. I think he was just more just somebody feeling that things were going against him. Yeah, fate's going against him at the moment. That's about the only that's the only entity that's got it out for him at the moment, I would say. But the real question is now, that puts him 23 points behind Rosberg. He's been that far, fractionally further behind than that this year, but there are only five races left. So this is getting pretty serious now. This, this is a decisive moment, potentially, because it, it shapes the running. Well, Lewis admitted that as well. He was asked that question outright uh, on Sunday at Sepang. And he said, you know, of course, we're so close now to the end of the championship. He is running out of time, but he has to take heart from the fact that he's already done this this season. He has turned around a similar gap. We worked out, didn't we, that it took him three races to overturn 24 points in the middle of the season. So by that maths, he's got plenty of time. He's got two bonus races if he needs them. Yeah, exactly. And he's got, he, he knows as well that he's going to be going to these circuits where he's, he's won in the past. Rosberg's been on pole at the, at the circuits that, we've, that we're coming up to next, but, but Lewis has, has managed to get one, over on him, get one over on him in the races. So I think he'll be confident that every time he goes out on track, you know, he knows that he's going to be in contention for, for the front row at worst. And then when it comes to race day, he knows that most of the time he's got the beating of Rosberg in race trip. And the bottom line is that he's got five races, even if it's one, two in all of them. If he's ahead, it's a seven-point swing every time. So, bang, five wins, he's champion. And also, I would actually say, based on last weekend, the man who needs to bounce back in terms of performance is Rosberg. Hamilton blew him away this weekend, just in in a straight fight. So, if we assume that Lewis's car remains reliable for the end of the season, he's certainly not sure that's going to happen. But if it is a straight fight, the man who needs to respond based on what happened in Malaysia, is Rosberg. Because he, 
he took a beating, just like Hamilton took a beating in Singapore and bounced back next time out. Until Hamilton had his failure and, and obviously it swung back in, in Rosberg's favour. And I guess even afterwards, you know, the way that the Rosberg has now extended his, his points lead as, as a result, it really doesn't do, uh, it really doesn't do any favours for him in terms of the argument that he is earning this world championship if he is to win his first title this season. He's, it's just sort of, it's that suggestion that he's not won this championship. Hamilton's lost it for reasons outside of his, his control. And while Singapore was a step in the right direction in terms of Rosberg proving he's good enough on his day to, to beat Lewis and he, he has the ability to drive like a champion, uh, the, the Malaysian Grand Prix weekend kind of then swung it back the other way because he wasn't good enough. But he's come out of it with a stronger lead because Lewis has had another problem. And there's still a feeling based on several years of evidence that Lewis Hamilton is the better performer over a 19-20-21 race season. Lewis is going to be better more often. Rosberg's a slightly more fragile driver, I guess you could say. And so, yeah, all things being equal, Hamilton is the guy who'll, who'll win it. And even now, Rosberg's got this advantage, notwithstanding the fact that he could have a failure himself in the next race and lose 25 points. Hamilton still has the cards in his hand to come back and win this championship. And it would be slightly unfortunate for Rosberg if he wins the championship with almost an asterisk against it because of Lewis's problems. Nico Rosberg won't be the first Formula One world champion who's won the title through reliability gremlins for a rival. It's just that in the modern era of F1, we're not as used to that. You, know, you look back to any time up to really, what, the mid to late 90s, races and championships could be decided by reliable cars versus unreliable cars. We're just not used to it anymore, so the, the, the dynamic has changed. The other element from, from the race, though, in terms of the, the title battle is Rosberg did show a little bit more metal than we've seen from him at other points this season in terms of the, the, the chips not sort of going in his favour and then him just sort of pulling something back. He was, he, he was obviously so unlucky of what the, the the first corner incident with Vettel diving down the inside. Oh, I'm going to have to slightly disagree on this one. Unlucky, not his fault, but if you're going to the first corner of a Grand Prix and you're wider, this happened in Bahrain with Hamilton and Bottas, and you cut back that way with a pack of 18, 20 cars behind you, there's always a risk that kind of thing might happen. A little bit unfortunate, but I think there was a, that was not the percentage play on his part. Doesn't mean it was his fault, but was that the wise move? I think there is... You know, you can have that reasonable expectation of risk going into the first corner, but at what point do you just sort of have to trust that the four-time world champion that's going down the inside, or if a four-time world champion is making a move to the inside, he's not going to make the mistake he did and career into another driver? I don't think, like you say, Rosberg's not really to blame there. Okay, maybe he could have been more conservative around the outside, but he is trying to beat Hamilton in a in a straight fight. You know, I don't think we should. Uh, detract from Rosberg in terms of the fact that he should have been being conservative into turn one when he's doing his own race. He kind of at some point does need to trust that the guys on his inside aren't going to be out of control like Vettel was. To what extent was Vettel actually out of control though? He wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to hug the inside line but... Did he bounce over the kerb? I think there, yeah. may, have, there may have been some kerb involved but it, well, it, it, you know, it wasn't a torpedo no, manoeuvre was he's it? he's out of control in the sense that he's, he knows he's going down the inside of one car there's another car on the outside and if you misjudge that as badly as he, as he did there's going to be an accident so out of control it, yeah he's not 
lost it under braking and speared backwards into people and, and, and wiped out half the field. But he has he has made an error of judgment, and without that, you know, he's not making he's not making the corner in a conventional sense, is he? Unless he no, no, that's, that's very true. To the side of very true. Rosberg, but, but it's a tendency we've seen from drivers. You know, Vettel did it at Spa as well. He turned in; he was entitled to. But there was a, there were Verstappen and Raikkonen legitimately on the inside, and there's always that risk when you you don't know exactly where people are. You know, Verstappen was perfectly entitled to make that move on that time. Vettel was entitled to be there. I'm not necessarily saying he shouldn't have got a penalty, but there's a you know sometimes it does take two people to have an accident, and you can you can say that you know if you're going to turn in that tightly in that manner, you're always going to be opening yourself up to that kind of attack. Similar thing with Hamilton in Bahrain. Yeah, and when you're fighting for a world championship. Maybe you do have to play the percentage a bit more early in the year, perhaps. The Hamilton one is, it's the same error, but maybe early in the year you're not thinking with that mindset. Was once you get to this stage, we know how close this world championship battle is going to be to the end of the year. Rosberg was putting his championship hopes in the hands of other people who don't drive Mercedes-powered cars who might not have much interest in what he's up to. And I think Scott referenced the fact that the Mercedes drivers are in an exclusive fight. I think since Mercedes have become the dominant force in F1 in 2014, the team and the drivers often operate as if they are having their own race and they they tend to interact quite badly in various ways, whether it's strategic or on track, with having other cars involved. It's as if they've almost forgotten how to race the rest of the field because they've spent so long just racing each other. And maybe there was a bit of that with Rosberg as well. Like you say, Scott, he was so focused on Hamilton because that's his battle that he actually he didn't give enough thought to the cars behind and just thought he could take his line it's a very that's a very wide run into turn one as well isn't it Sepang's such a wide track and he was coming from much further from the outside than was it Vettel on the outside at Spa when they were three abreast yep. there yep. Yeah, that's quite a narrow first corner. And again, he did the same thing. It, it doesn't mean it's his fault or anything. It's just that thing of Not playing the percentages, yeah. calculating I don't think every single little move and just making sure you're out of sort of, I don't think it's a sort of run to the first corner misjudgment as we saw, for example, from Fernando Alonso in, in 2012 at Suzuka when he just maybe he got it slightly wrong and moved over the front of, of Kimi Raikkonen's Lotus and, and yeah. caught his front yeah, wing. Yeah. Like that was just... No, that's, that, that's, that's a different... It, that, it's, it's a different incident in a sense, but that was more of a misjudgment from the from the driver who had a percentage play to make in terms of the championship. Definitely. Yeah, no question that. Yeah. Nine, nine times out of ten, Rosberg gets away with it. it yeah, it, more, it, probably more than nine times out of ten. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, I, think he's, I think he's very unlucky, but you know, the, I, I think the point is that the drive Rosberg was executing after that, even before Hamilton's unfortunate <laughs> engine failure, was maybe a little bit better than we've seen him try and do in the past. You know, oh, get, get stuck in the midfield, spin out in Montreal when trying to pass Verstappen, that sort of thing. It was composed, wasn't it? But, yeah, um, you, could, you could see him early on when he was picking off some of the slower cars. He wasn't being impatient, he was making clear, decisive passes. Can I throw a curveball in here? This is probably something that one day, especially if you're in charge, Ed will certainly get his own podcast. But was Rosberg's drive through the field another advert for reverse grids in F1? <laughs> uh, going off on that uh, controversial tangent. I maintain that if what many people say they want is actually what they want, then I.e. lots of overtaking in exactly, F1. Exactly. Then that is the way you create the conditions. It doesn't mean slow people win the race. It means it redefines the way that you race. And you can ask a short oval racer in the UK how that kind of thing works. So if you want action, 
I mean, Martin Brundle said it a few times, don't line up all the cars in pace order and then be surprised when they all drive around at their pace not passing each other. But that's, uh, that's definitely off on a, on a spectacular tangent. I imagine Rosberg certainly would, uh, would rather not have to do that kind of charge through the field so often, obviously. But it doesn't matter whether they flip the grids or not, because if we hand out penalties like the one Rosberg got for his move on Raikkonen, we're not going to have any overtaking in, in Formula 1 anyway, are we? Well, there's, there's the big controversy. That, uh, that was called complete nonsense by Toto Wolff, a completely dispassionate observer of that particular incident. <laughs> Kimi Räikkönen himself didn't seem to be too upset. He's quite happy to point out when he's furious about an overtaking manoeuvre, as uh, Sergio Perez has found out in the past. So what, what do we think of that? Rosberg's move on Räikkönen. Yeah. I, I liked it. I like the fact that he, he set him up in the previous corner. He's having a look around the outside. And then he had that moment where you saw a racing driver bit sort of showing raw behavior you know he he got he got on the throttle too hard the car got out of shape he he jumped on the brakes like you maybe would in a, in a you know in a in a softly sprung row car or in a in a cart and it was all about just a big lunge lock up as many wheels as you need to to try and get down the inside because there was so much at stake and i quite like seeing cars a little bit out of control trying to overtake each other and it was a little bit of contact. I know Raikkonen picked up some damage, which hurt his performance a little bit. I, I liked it. And to be honest, with both of the incidents that we've discussed that people got penalties for, I was, I was a little bit disappointed because we are, as Scott suggests, we're suggesting to the drivers that they shouldn't actually try these things and they shouldn't try and be entertaining. And whether it likes it or not, Formula One is entertainment or should be. There is a danger that you end up with drivers being too risk-averse. Yes. You want drivers to be able to lay it on the line. I understand why Rosberg got a penalty. Personally. He claims he understood as well, yeah. which I think is yeah. only the case because he built the 10-second cushion to Raikkonen. Exactly. You can afford to be very magnanimous. And I think the fact Raikkonen exactly was... exactly what happened. I think the fact Raikkonen was relaxed about it was the fact that he thought, well, if he didn't pass me there, he'd probably pass me the next lap or at turn four or whatever. But... You look at the mechanics of the accident, Rosberg, he has, he has the first wobble, he has the second wobble as he's getting in towards the apex, that does carry him out into, into Raikkonen. So from that perspective, yes, there was a degree of not being fully in control, yeah. it was on the edge. In the past, I've complained about the decision on whether to penalise or not being based on the outcome rather than the mechanics of the incident. You could easily have had a wheel-to-wheel contact and suddenly Raikkonen's on his roof, so to speak. And in that case, you'd say, well, of course it should be one. But Raikkonen did what drivers are meant to do, historically. Stayed out of it a little he, bit. He gave a little bit of room. They had a bit of rubbing. You know, it's the old rubbings racing thing. If, if, we, if we don't want to see that, then we've got to ask what kind of racing do we want to see? There's got to be that grey area where you can get into the realms of it's a little bit of a racing accident, a little bit slightly wrong by Rosberg, but not too wrong to warrant interfering with the, with the race result, even if it did have no bearing on the actual positions. And if you're not going to let drivers race like that, then the only way you get overtaking is through things like DRS. And people say they don't like DRS passes because they're not properly contested overtaking manoeuvres. So which one do we want? I seem to remember there being a bit of contact between Arnoux and Villeneuve at the French Grand Prix in, in 79. Oh, really? Dijon. How, was, how was that received, I wonder? Uh, I think people quite liked it. I don't think there are any penalties, certainly. <laughs> I think the other thing uh, regarding the, 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 the way Raikkonen reacted to the incident, part of me wonders whether he was feeling a little bit sheepish for actually being caught out as badly as he was by by Rosberg because I don't think that's 
Uh, it was very inventive from Rosberg in the moment in terms of correcting the slide and then going for the inside. But it's not like we've not seen that that move down at that that corner before. I think that the the, the layout of turn one into turn two does lend itself to if you can stick with someone through the first bit as the corner tightens back on itself and you and the car in front stays right doesn't necessarily move right but it presents an opportunity to go down 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 the inside the track is designed with that in mind yeah, that, exactly all these, a, the modern tracks are designed with passing in mind and that's a ideal opportunity i don't i don't buy for a second the the argument from raikkonen that um he he should have been totally caught by surprise from from rosberg he may well have been but I just I, I don't actually see how a world champion in that scenario, when you've got a fast car attacking you like that in, into the corner, especially when he know he knew that Rosberg had gone a little bit deep as well in, in, into one. So Rosberg was was looking racy. I just like you've got to see that coming if you're if you're composed and you're as experienced as Raikkonen is. You've, you've got to be prepared for that lunge at the inside. This is also part of that trend we're seeing for a few drivers pulling the old surprise overtake. Daniel Ricciardo a few times has said. I think a few people are trying new moves since I've been making some of these passes. We saw Verstappen catching some people out in, in Singapore with where he said it, you know, going unorthodox with the way they, they make moves. So a driver's always got to be ready to be attacked. There was nothing wrong with Rosberg making that move. I think we can agree. There was there was no terrible, terrible injustice in him making the attack. So once he's in there, there's a different argument about what he does. But from Raikkonen's perspective, yeah, he, he's right to feel slightly mugged by the move, less in a that shouldn't have happened. And, uh, you know, I probably should have been a little bit yeah. more onto that. But he was thinking about turn four. Yeah, Scott. But that's, that's racing, isn't it? You, If you know a driver is thinking about two corners ahead, you know what they're going to do. And then you can think, well, actually, if he's thinking about turn four, I might be able to think about doing something in turn two. Yeah, well, Scott's absolutely right. At that point, Raikkonen should have been thinking about the corners they were in. You know that someone's gone to your outside. You know that gives him the inside for the next corner. So you don't you forget about turn four. You worry about turn four when you get there and you start worrying about turn two. So... He did, he did mug him in the end and actually controversy was avoided really because a penalty was handed out that didn't affect the result. As you say, Raikkonen wasn't that bothered. Rosberg was able to make out he accepted the penalty. My bigger problem here actually with both of these penalties is that these sort of incidents that we're debating where it's, it's very marginal and it was quite low speed contact and it was you could debate if it was exciting racing or someone being slightly out of control all these things are up for debate but they get penalties yet a few races ago someone swerves at somebody at 200 miles an hour but because they left a car's width on one side that's okay um for anyone with short memories we're obviously talking about Verstappen and Raikkonen at Spa I had a much bigger problem with that than I do with these incidents and that comes down to a well a rule that's written and a rules interpretation that's been around for quite some time that that kind of movement but you're right that's that's much, much more concerning. The, probably, look at the if you look at the Raikkonen Rosberg thing, there's a little bit of rubbing, incidental bodywork damage. That's the worst you get. But if you're going to make contact on the Camel Straight at Spa, the, the damage of that incident will be significantly larger. Well, it goes back to what you were just saying about consequences. We, I think Rosberg's been punished there because there was contact and he got and he got passed. Because okay, that there's an implication there that he's at fault and he's done something he shouldn't. But just because Verstappen didn't put Raikkonen in the trees at Spa, does that mean he shouldn't be penalised for it? And I feel like that influenced that decision. Obviously, if they'd have made contact there, do you honestly think that nothing would have been done about Verstappen? That also raises one of the problems that some of the, well, all of the stewards have got. They're in a pretty difficult position because once they're actually looking at an incident like that, they are told that any decision they make has to stand up to challenge in a court of law. 
some of those sort of in-race incidents is a little bit different. But ultimately, that's what they're trying to look at. And then as soon as you break it down in that Rosberg incident, well, he had, he had the wobble coming off the corner. He had the wobble in the corner. He came across into Kimmy. Actually, yeah, logically, with the way things are being done, once that's on their table and they're looking at it and they, they get to look at a lot more data than us, in fairness, that's kind of the obvious conclusion for them. And I understand that. But unless you allow this grey area to happen, everyone... Everyone talks about, oh, it has to be consistency, but no two incidents are, are identical. You can have similarities, but there has to be a little bit of grey area. You have got to say, this is the centre point where maybe there's a little bit of blame on one side, but everyone got away with it. And you have to let that happen for there to be good racing. I can obviously see the argument you can make for Rosberg being at fault for the collision with Raikkonen, but I don't think it can be categorised as it's a clear, it's clear cut. You, I don't think you look at that in the first um, in the first instance and say... That was definitely Rosberg's fault. He's caused a collision there. He should be penalised. And the way the FIA sporting regulations are written are that if, unless it's clear that a driver is in breach of the regulation and has caused a collision, then the incident gets reviewed after the race. That's what should have happened. You're trigger happy in the stewards' room because you think, I don't know if you feel like you need to act on something like that because there has been that, that contact. But by making that snap decision, they've made, they've made the wrong decision. And actually, as the rules are written... You know, you've got a perfect justification there for actually delaying it. The, the stewards can't win, though, because if you have too many post-race penalties, people think, well, what's the point of us watching this? So I, I have sympathy in that regard, and I have sympathy with the fact that they are dealing with some, what I would consider, poorly written rules, because, as Ed says, if there's any grey areas in the rules that are open to interpretation, the teams will jump down their throats at every opportunity they get to contest those decisions. And I think in a lot of sports, actually, you, you pick a referee and his interpretation of controversial moments, nine times out of ten, is final. But in F1, it seems to everything has to have a, a black or a white outcome. And as Ed says, no two racing incidents are the same. And you can't, you can't have such tightly defined rules that govern contact between two racing cars at speed. What happens now, though, if uh, Rosberg and Hamilton go wheel-to-wheel for the title... And there's a similar incident where there's a little bit of wheel banging or, you know, wheel on barge board, that sort of thing. And we've now got this precedent where if you nudge a car and go past, it's a penalty. So what happens if that if that now has an impact on someone's race result? Rosberg said he was able to accept it because he was lucky that it didn't change his result. But what if it did and it put him back behind Kimi and instead of finishing third, he finished fourth and he lost the title by two points? It's just the kind of thing that comes back to bite Formula One, isn't it? These kind of interpretations. Especially as you know, Formula One's fighting and often seem to be losing battle at improving the show. And it's always talking about the spectacle. And we've got regulations coming in for 2017 that are designed to make the cars much faster. But then there are concerns, legitimate concerns, I think, in some quarters that these changes to improve the show are actually going to make overtaking harder. You know, F1 loves to shoot itself in the foot. And actually doing something that's going to detract from the rare moments of on-track, on-track entertainment is only going to be negative for it. Now, on the subject of on-track entertainment, probably the, the best bit of the race was the battle for what was then second, but actually was the, the decisive battle of the race between Ricardo and Verstappen. When Verstappen on, on fresher rubber was catching Ricardo for second, and we had this fantastic battle. They went side by side through turns five and six, which is absolutely astonishing. They gave each other racing room it was it was very hard racing and I must confess at the time I was looking at it and thinking from a team perspective that's that's counterproductive Hamilton was trying to pull an advantage to be able to pit 
and re-emerge ahead or as close as possible. And that did cost some time. But of course, with what happened with the engine failure for Hamilton, that, that was the moment that decided the race. I quite like the idea that um, once Hamilton's calmed down and, and, and everything's fine within the, the Mercedes garage again, that, that Toto and, and Nicky Lauda will be bringing up the video of uh, Verstappen and Ricardo going side by side through five and six and then maybe maybe play it next to a video of the start of the Spanish Grand Prix and just go oh, spot the difference here between what happens when you give your teammate and rival racing room but, but are still going at it. As long as, as long as that means we don't have to hear the term rules of engagement again. I'm so <laughs> sick of that. It bores me to tears. Well, we have to have rules of engagement and then we have hints that people may be benched and all that kind of thing and substitute drivers and then it, and it doesn't happen but it, yeah. it was good I do feel that maybe we saw a little bit of a, a taste of what's to come because there's every chance Red Bull's going to be right up there as a championship challenger next year with the new rules and Verstappen and Ricardo, if they've got the car under them to fight for the title they, they're going to be right up there Christian Horner said after the race that you know, they were fighting for, for, for track position so Ricardo's defence was, was merited but I wonder if actually in, in as it was happening, you know, Ricardo's just doing that because in this moment I have the opportunity to just show what show what I'm about. Oh, definitely. And there was no the, question that was in Ricardo's yeah, mind. But and the fact that it then ended up being for the win, just I don't know. I don't know whether you know Verstappen's going to be. He didn't look too gutted afterwards, did, did he? Looked no, like he played he just, it really well. He looked like he just enjoyed the fact that he'd finished second, had had a mega battle. And he'd driven exceptionally well all weekend anyway. It was just good to see them both react that way. Because I thought Verstappen, I don't know about you, but when I was watching it and sort of the final stints playing out and they've both come in for, for soft tyres, admittedly Verstappen on, on, on slightly used softs after qualifying. Part of me was just thinking, a second and a half, I don't think it matters if they get told to hold station. Part of me was expecting Max to go in. I was, I was expecting, at the scene of Multi-21, I was expecting Verstappen to do a Vettel and to just overrule any orders. And actually, I think it's, it's huge credit to him at his age and of his level of experience that he, unlike Vettel in 2013 with Mark Webber, was prepared to be the bigger man. And if there was an instruction, and I think there was, they were both told, take a drink in a slightly odd way at the same time. If there was an instruction, Verstappen followed it. He respected it. And it's not the first time, actually, he's played the team game this year which when you think about how he behaved at Toro Rosso, which we believe played a part in him getting moved out of that team because it was becoming almost toxic with Carlos Sainz, the fact that he is, he's playing the game at the big team, even when there are race wins on the line, I think that's actually a real sign of his sort of growing maturity in F1. And coming back to the start of this topic, their wheel-to-wheel battle, he and Ricardo both showed each other just the right amount of respect. And it was hard fighting. You know, If you think... They went at it sort of coming out of turn four as well. Then they were side by side through five and six. And they contested the breaking zone of, of seven. And Verstappen knew when he was beaten and gave the corner up. I think that's superb racing all round. And I'm really interested to see that sort of mature attitude from Verstappen. It shows as well that Verstappen will have the ability to, to calculate what he's doing. You know, He was thinking about how hard he could push it in that battle. What he could do, what he couldn't do. And that, that shows a capacity for someone who's still about five years old, <laughs> to really play the percentages in a way he hasn't always done this year. So I think that tells us that this is a guy who, despite his inexperience and his relative youth, is, is, going, to be a, is going to be a potent threat if that Red Bull is as good as we think it should be. But while, I mean, Verstappen was the, was the stronger Red Bull driver in Malaysia, 
in our driver ratings by Ben Anderson, our Grand Prix editor, who, when it comes to the driver ratings, is always without fail wrong. And also our, always right. And, and always right as well, and always biased for and against certain people and the same people. Mainly based on nationality. Usually, yes, yeah. And usually biased against and for different people, depending on what rating he's given. But uh, he gave Ricardo 9 and Verstappen 10, which I think w- was absolutely fair. Not that anybody could be disappointed for Ricardo over two years on actually getting his fourth Grand Prix win at last. Yeah, long overdue, especially with what happened earlier this year. Uh, to answer your original question about next year's championship battle, my one concern is based on what we saw from Red Bull the last time they were a potent championship force. And I think we've seen it from a lot of teams, actually. When you end up right at the front, fighting for wins over and over again, all of this let them race and a good attitude out of the car and all that sort of thing, having a bit of fun, it all goes away. Mercedes have tried really hard to try and keep things interesting but Red Bull went from being a fun loving team to a serious race winning machine which is fine but I think they also they created a dreadful image for themselves and for F1 when they were winning because they 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 locked themselves out to the rest of the world really so I actually fear that if it is Ricardo versus Verstappen which is a tantalizing prospect at the moment two great contrasting personalities great drivers but will Red Bull sort of turn their championship fight into lockdown if that's what we have next year? What do you reckon? You, you witnessed the Red Bull domination last time around. They'll certainly have learned a few things. They'll probably have learned not to, if they collide, take a photo of the two of them joshing about at the factory in shrugging. hilarious fashion. <laughs> that shrugging. That, that didn't work well. They have to have learned a little bit from the past when it comes to this. And I guess the fact that neither driver has quite the same relationship that Sebastian Vettel had with with Red Bull and particularly Helmut Marco one person fairly close to the situation described the relationship between Vettel and Marco as almost paternal which explained why in Turkey in 2010 when they had the collision which was Vettel's fault yeah no matter what they say when he collided with Weber that's why we had these weird comments from Marco that flared everything up and they couldn't calm it down and it never really really got settled and then you on that you're on a path all the way through to, to multi-21. Whether Red Bull can actually deal with that, I don't know. The problem is, the natural order of things is Ricardo, who's, you can make a very strong case, as the best driver in Formula 1. He'll be the favourite. Verstappen and the Verstappen camp don't take things lying down. He's not going to be a number two. And the next time they're battling, if they're side by side like that in the Australian Grand Prix next year, it's about more than just what that was, a second place and maybe a lucky win. That's making a mark in the championship. And that's when margins go from a car width to a little bit less than a car width and things all go wrong I think um, Turkey 2010 as a very quick aside is possibly the best section of Mark Webber's book it's far more revealing than multi 21 actually but maybe there are a couple of differences here to last time for Red Bull firstly both drivers have come up through the Red Bull scheme or were signed as Red Bull juniors and I would actually argue that the drivers are more equal this time I think Vettel felt he could maybe get away with a bit more with Webber because he felt he had his number I'm not sure either of these current Red Bull drivers could ever claim that weekend after weekend they know they can pull something out of the bag that's going to beat the other one. So maybe the dynamic will be different. I think as well, the the other thing to consider with the Verstappen-Ricardo relationship is not to not to sound like I'm detracting too much from Verstappen's maturity in, in Malaysia. You touched on it. It's going to be a different set of circumstances next year. And it's all well and good being happy to have finished second and to 
to show that sort of respect when you won on your debut with the team earlier in the year. You know that your teammate has been screwed over by situations a couple of times. I guess you can be a little bit more amicable about the whole situation, but whether it's in the first race in 2017, halfway through the season or going into the season finale, when the title's on the line and you're not just fighting over a podium finish or something like that, like that entire dynamic changes regardless of how different the, the personalities are obviously yeah, how they handle that, it is different I think that's the point but... I'm making is that Verstappen could read that situation he knew that this wasn't the be all and end all that he... was not the time to create <laughs> exactly something that may create rules of engagement ahead of next season yeah exactly I think Scott's point is valid it will be yeah, different yeah. next year but Verstappen understood that in this situation with some of the things that have happened this year this wasn't the time for him to kick up a stink I'm sure if those two are fighting for the championship next year something will happen at some point of course it will and obviously, we've talked a lot about the battle at the front, but a little bit further down the order, we saw Jolian Palmer finally get his first point in 10th place with a, with a decent drive for, for Renault. We were waxing lyrical about teammate Kevin Magnussen for his drive in Singapore, but this, this was a decent effort from, from Palmer and, and much deserved. I'm guessing he must have had the sort of the, the ghost of Hungary in his mind at some point during that race. With, he admitted with, he did. He, he Credit to him, actually. Jolien's almost far too honest for his own good. But he, he genuinely said for the final 10 laps, he was basically driving around saying, don't think about Hungary. Don't think about Hungary. Whilst obviously thinking about Hungary. But he held on to it this time. And I really like his honesty. You know, he, he came out after qualifying, having been really upbeat on Friday, and then declared his qualifying depressing. He's never afraid to criticise himself, sometimes probably to the detriment of his reputation in that paddock. So, yeah, really pleased for him to get a point. It's, it's quite surprising, I think, to see Renault suddenly sneaking these points finishes as you imagine their car falls even further behind. But, no, I think pleased for Palmer. Not sure it means he'll have a drive next year, but he's done a he did a good job and he got some reward for it at last. I quite like the way he closed out that, that race, actually, because he once they'd come in after the... The, the final virtual safety car he he had signs behind him and they, they were both both on softs and I know the Toro Rosso is uh, particularly weak at circuits like Sepang where the fact that their their car's quite draggy hurts them quite a lot especially with the the, the 2015 Ferrari engine in the back of it but you know signs has proven this year I mean he had a very good season last year but he's been exceptional at times this year and I thought at one stage with about 10 laps to go sort of thinking there's a second and a half between them I just wonder whether or not Palmer's actually got it in him to to yeah. see off this, this this guy. And credit to him by the by the flag, he was in, you know two and a half seconds clear or something like that. So not only did he manage the gap, he actually got himself into a situation where he was under less pressure at the end of the race. If if he'd been doing that at the front of the field for a, a victory or a podium finish or something like that, you would say it was an excellently managed race where you made sure he didn't do too much, he didn't take too much out of the car, out of the tyres. The fact that he only did it for 10th place, that, sh that shouldn't take any shine off of the performance. Well, Renault's only got eight points in total with that point this year, so it's hardly a, a points machine. I guess the real question is whether that can make a big difference for, for next season. One Renault candidate has dropped off the list. Sergio Perez is now officially, officially, officially confirmed at Force India, something that seems to have happened about 12 times already this year, but was finally officially, officially, official with the press release and everything. So we can assume he's there so there's still this question mark over do they keep Palmer do they keep Magnussen what happens with Ocon who he's had some tough times in his first few races with Manor but under, underneath it all he's a rookie driver with a hell of a lot of ability I know that uh, I know that Palmer's not 
the, the the most exciting option on the table for them for next season. But I quite like him in in, in regards to how he represents the the journey a driver goes through during his junior career. He kind of dispels the the myth of potential for me. You know what you see as a driver at fifteen, sixteen, and how mega they look when they're in what Formula Four is now or Formula Renault. A Van Dorn, for example, uh, who just looks destined for F1 from the very beginning. You know, there's a reason Palmer has never been a finalist for the McLaren Autosport BRDC award. Uh, people, he's some, too old, isn't he? <laughs> he is now. I think with with Jolien, because he's got into F1 now. One of the things I have heard has, has been, you know, he's always another British driver. He's got into Formula One and he wasn't a, a star um, early in his single seat career. He's bought his way into F1 and, and things like that. But by the time he, you know, he was comfortably wrapping up the GP2 title. He he developed into a into a, re- a really good racing driver, a one whose end product was quite far away from what it looked like it was going to be at stages in his junior single seater career. And the fact that he has now got to this point, where, you know, he should have two points to his name because he should have finished in the points in in Hungary. He, he he's broken his duck now, and I feel like he's actually validating his presence within that team. I don't think he's been shown up by Magnussen in the way that maybe a lot of people thought he might this year. He, I don't think he's had the peaks, but we know how good Magnussen is. He's certainly not out of place, no question about that. I think he's he's good. he deserved to have a point. He proved that in GP2. I think his, his GP2 championship winning season, even if he was in the category for quite a long time, the way he he sort of put he put Nazar away, didn't he, in the championship fight? Spectacularly so. Yeah, I, th- I think he proved himself then, so I've had no problem with him with him getting a drive. Now the pool of candidates for a Renault drive for next year are... It's starting to dry up. Maybe he's in with a shot. I'd be very surprised if they keep both of them. Yeah, that's the question. And it becomes then a question of what do they see about the way they're working behind the scenes? How are they putting in the the necessary hours to understand what the car's doing and understand what the engineers are doing? And that's something that's hard to see from the outside. But he's he's in the mix. He's putting himself in contention. If Renault confirmed tomorrow that Palmer was staying on, you wouldn't think, that's an absolute outrage. So that's sort of box one ticks. He, sh- he showed he can do a job. I think as as well with with, with Ocon coming in at, at, at Manor and, and and doing a good job. Actually, in, in fairness to him, he ran as he got up to tenth at the, on the chaotic first lap at, at the weekend, which, which was a mega showing. I think the fact that Harry Anto obviously dropped out of that seat halfway through this year and Ocon's stepped up. You know, I'm I'm guessing Ocon and Verline are are very much in the mix to, to be manor drivers in 2017. Does that help Palmer's cause as well in terms of staying on with Magnussen at Renault? Is there anyone else in the mix who could potentially scupper that or could the landscape change that means Ocon does go to Renault and someone else goes to manor? I think a lot depends on what Renault wants to achieve. Obviously, as a works team, they want to be winning world championships down the line. So they want to have a top-line driver, ideally. That's not easy to do when you're ninth in the Constructors' Championship. So they'll probably be looking at it as, can we develop a young driver? So Ocon is is probably the guy to put in the car for the longer term, given the experience, and then reap the rewards down the line. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's him. But like you say, the pool of drivers isn't massive. I think there's two things to consider there. Firstly, Manor at the moment don't sound that convinced that they'll get both of the Merck Juniors again next year, from the way the people in the team are talking at the moment. Well, Harry Anto's drive was based upon sponsorship. Exactly. So their baseline will be, we want a driver to be able to bring sponsorship and this team will be a lot more appealing than it was over the last winter given the performance level it's shown. But also looking at it from Mercedes' perspective, do they actually need two junior drivers of that level? 
Or if they decide that Verline's good enough, will they be prepared to make the, the loan, if you want to call it that, of Ocon a bit more permanent? And then Renault have got a Frenchman they can properly get behind. Well, certainly that could play into it with Renault. They talked to McLaren about Van Dorn for this year. McLaren were open to him going there, but it, it wouldn't have been a, right, you sign him, he's your driver now. It would have been a he's on loan. So they think, well, we don't want to give a driver a year or two experience just for him to be slotted into a McLaren a few years down the line. So that's probably what will decide things on, on Ocon. In a way, you might say it's more positive for him from Mercedes if he is still a manor from a Mercedes valuation perspective. But then again, if they can let him go into a Renault, have a seat, they don't have to really worry about on any commercial basis. Ocon gets trained for a few years, Renault gets some good performances out of him. That's great for Mercedes, but not necessarily what Renault is looking for. Could end up with a tug of war further down the line if it, if it remains alone. If he becomes the real deal in three or four years' time, there's going to be quite a fight for his services. Well, then you end up with that situation like you had with both BMW and Red Bull being quite keen on a, a certain Sebastian Vettel. But also in the driver market, we saw Haas team principal Gunther Steiner ruling out Charles Leclerc, which I think we all found rather disappointing. Leclerc, he's going to win GP3. He certainly should do. He's a seriously good driver. He's impressed in his test outings and his Friday outings and we were kind of looking forward to him coming in next year. Glenn's been a paid-up member of the Leclerc fan club since his race-winning wildcard outing in Renault Euro Cup a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, he was mega when he, he turned up. Um, I think it was wet. He did the Nürburgring and didn't really didn't really stand out. It was quite a big field. But then, yeah, he was right at the front. I think he was on the podium in Hungary or something like that. And I just remember watching thinking, wow, who is this kid? And it had been a while since, in all the junior categories that I'd covered, it had been a while since someone had stood out like that to me. You know, I, I felt... I'd seen similar things from maybe Paul DeResta, from Lewis Hamilton, um, Jules Bianchi more recently, Nico Hülkenberg. But Leclerc was the first one in a while. And having followed his progress since, you know, he, he, seemed, he was one, the next driver I felt that was on that sort of rocket ship to F1. And whatever you do, if someone's got that momentum, don't kill it. And it just feels like Ferrari, in their inevitable conservatism, are going to kill it. You know, they don't even need to take the risk of putting him in their own car. Put him in the Haas alongside Grosjean. Grosjean's a fantastic benchmark. Grosjean could be a top-line driver if he got the right car. So let's put this potential wonder kid alongside him and see what he's got. But instead, what, we can have another year of Gutierrez? I can't imagine that Gutierrez is solely with, you know, has his relationship with Ferrari the way he does purely because he's an outstanding young talent that they think is nailed on to be a future world champion. They're Probably other benefits there commercially in terms of re- reach and that sort of thing. There's a bit of Mexican money on that for yeah, exactly. delivery as well, isn't yeah, there? Exactly. It's, it's certainly so, good commercially, so, but, so but I it, do depends, under, it depends what you're there to do. I do understand that you've obviously got things like that to, to fa- factor in, but if that's what if this, if that's what Ferrari is having to do in terms of bringing young younger drivers into to Formula One or or having an influence over which drivers go where in Grand Prix racing, then Formula 1 is, is an even bigger problem than I thought it was. If Ferrari can't say, actually, we've got this mega young driver on our books, and then they can flick the person who's bringing maybe a little bit of money or whatever, then I, I don't know what the other teams are going to do whenever they... It's, it's also worth remembering that, obviously, Gilles Bianchi was the previous Ferrari junior. He only got into F1 by luck. Remember, he wasn't in the Marussia. Razia had the drive, and then his his backers, they they came up with, I think, the first chunk of money, and then nothing more came. And then Bianchi got in, and then he had a few years there, and then there would have been the plan to move him up to Sauber, then maybe to 
Ferrari. So, so this is quite extreme from Ferrari. They they clearly recognise the need to have young drivers because there's there's not many people capable of being top talents. But then they seem very laissez-faire about bringing them through. And it's astonishing that they'll be willing to pay huge sums of money to get someone who's been developed elsewhere down the line, but not invest less over a period of time to develop a driver who could be at that level and then be tied to them long term. I don't think there's any commercial thinking behind Ferrari needing to keep Gutierrez in the car. You know, if, if they really, really wanted to back Leclerc, they would do it. I think it's the big problem is they are just so conservative. And they're not the only team guilty of this on the grid. There are so many other sports where that cliche of if you're good enough, you're old enough applies. But why, with the exception of perhaps Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton in 2007, and then maybe Vettel, why is it so infrequent that, team, that teams will take a chance on one of these drivers? It is conservatism, and it's a lack of ability to try and tell the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Yeah. You They're very poor at talent spotting, I think. Exactly. You know, we've, we've all covered junior single-seater racing. You know you don't just look at the results. You speak to the team. You understand the equipment they're in, the support they've got. And there's certain drivers who people, engineers, experienced engineers will say, actually, this guy, you know, he's got something a little bit about him. This is what we hear about people like Leclerc. On paper, you might look at it and think, well, that's not that different to that CV or that CV. But this isn't, it's just like a, a normal job CV. It can tell you the bare bones of things, but it won't tell you everything about... Exactly. It won't yeah. tell you about a certain individual skill set. It's just one part of it. So teams need to be willing to do that. And I just don't see Ferrari... They kind of understand the need to do it, but I feel like they don't commit to it in the way they should do On the subject to the driver market as a whole, it's ended up being quite boring this year, hasn't it? You know, before, yeah, before Ferrari confirmed Raikkonen, you know, who's going to go to Ferrari? What's going to happen here? What, the, the only interesting thing that's happened really is McLaren taking Van Dorn. All the other potentially interesting moves have all sort of fizzled out and we're going to end up with mostly the same pieces in the same places. Yeah, it's just a case of the old Lance Stroll coming in, that kind of thing, or maybe a knock-on move. So there's not, there's not a great deal for people to get excited about it, it's from the really, perspective. It's not really drivers switching teams, is it? You know, McLaren have promoted Van Dorn. If, if Williams do take Stroll, as it sounds like they have, he was already on their books, he comes yeah. in as a rookie, so that's, that's a new wave of drivers coming in. But we're not getting any moves between the teams, and that sort of thing is really interesting. But again, because of conservatism, I feel, teams aren't prepared to take drivers they don't necessarily know stuff about. Do you think we'll see Gasly showing up in the, the second Toro Rosso next year? Fiat's days at Toro Rosso numbered are the, his days in F1 numbered. If he's not at Toro Rosso, can we see him nicking the second Renault seat, for example, that sort of thing? I think Red Bull should take Gasly. If he doesn't quite win the championship in GP2 this year now, it's still... Which he might not, yeah. given what happened in Malaysia. Yeah. It's still the closest a Red Bull driver has come to winning that championship. Mm. Uh, drivers have been promoted to Toro Rosso for less. Um, and if if Red Bull have already demoted Kvyat from the top team, for whatever reason, you know, if, if Verstappen is a force of nature, then so be it. But if you've eliminated Kvyat from that equation for now, it doesn't feel very Red Bull to me to then keep that guy and maybe see if you can build him back up into, what, a, a solid number two in the future? I think if you've got... Because there's someone knocking on the door in Gasly... Kvyat's got to move on. To answer Scott's question about could he stay in F1, there's Russian money on the fringes of a couple of F1 teams. That's why drivers like Sirotkin and a few others have often 
have often joined the conversation about maybe landing a drive at somewhere like Renault. If you are a Russian backer looking to get involved in Formula One, Kvyat's the guy you take. He's the most proven Russian candidate. So I think he could end up somewhere else. But I think that's his only chance. It's that, or perhaps if Renault take a punt on a science and they can prize him away, then they might need the promote Pierre Gasly and then you have Kvyat as the experienced hand, but it's probably a little bit out of his hand. But 2017 is a long way away and we've still got five races to go before we need to start worrying too much about uh, that season. We've got the Japanese Grand Prix this weekend, so check out autosport.com for all the latest news, both in the build-up to the race and during the weekend. Pick up a copy of Autosport magazine out Thursday to read our in-depth coverage of the Malaysian Grand Prix and also take a look at goings-on in the rest of the motorsport week. So it's goodbye from Glenn, Scott and myself. We'll be back next week with our look back at the Japanese Grand Prix. is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo music. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.